Welcome to the 40th episode of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the January 6th insurrection in the United States, the security implications of the pandemic, and the new chief of the defense staff. Our feature interview is with Maggie Feldman-Pilch, founder and CEO of Unicorn Strategies and a driving force behind the project, NatSet Girl Squad. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year, Stephanie. How are you doing? Great. Nothing much has happened since we last spoke in December. <laughs> There's not much going on in either Canadian defense and security or in international security in the past few months. Everybody's taking the time off to chill out, enjoy Winterfest, follow restrictions on the pandemic. So it's all been good. It's been good. It's actually such a bizarre feeling when you're pretty much locked inside your own house and the world still seems to be falling apart out there. I don't know if you have the same feeling, but for me, I've been in my house, uh, hardly going outdoors, uh, just a bit of exercise, but then you're watching what's going on in the world on the news. And it's a little bit difficult not to feel such a strong disconnect. Yeah. It turns out my investment in winter gear hasn't really paid off since uh, there's not enough snow to really snow, snowshoe. But instead we have the events of last week, so which we should talk about first as they impinge upon Canadian security and as they also are relevant for the larger issues that we study, such as civil military relations. Obviously, since I'm an American who spent a fair amount of time in D.C., I have my own opinions on this, but I think people are, and I've already expressed them through Twitter and blogging. So uh, what were your reactions to what you saw last Wednesday? Trump is responsible for this. He's been riling up his most extremist supporters since mid-December. I really fret right now about what might happen on Inauguration Day, and I'm sure that's the case for, for many people in the United States, but also all around the world. Shutting down his Twitter account and other social media platforms was the right thing to do. And I was happy to see that Congress reconvened that same evening on January 6th to confirm that Joe Biden won the election, but at the same time, very much dismayed that even after the day of violence we all witnessed on TV, too many Republicans still stood by Trump in contesting the legitimacy of the vote. Then, of course, you know, whether it's on Twitter or elsewhere, we were all monitoring the types of debates that were emerging in response to these events. Much was said and written about how this mob could so easily breach security and storm the Capitol. The Capitol Police is the target of criticism, but it raises the larger point about the extent to which right-wing extremist groups have sympathizers in law enforcement. And when you look at how few people were arrested on January 6th, it just boggles the mind. And now the FBI has to chase down people several days after the fact to make arrests, looking at pictures online and so on. Of course, and your daughter would have strong views on this, but people commenting on the day's events couldn't help but point out that police reaction to the violence we saw very much contrasted to the police presence and response we saw back mm -hmm. in the spring during the peak of the Black Lives Matter protests. So I, I don't know, I've been following and at the same time wondering how I will um, gather my thoughts about this in addressing my 
IR seminar tomorrow mm. because it's the beginning of the winter term. I'm walking into a graduate seminar with emerging international relations scholars. And, you know, there are lots of, of crises and, and conflicts that we could be covering and that are indeed embedded in the syllabus's design. But I think most people will want to talk about the events of last week. It's probably the same for you, uh, Steve, as you prepare for your classes this week. You must be really thinking about how these conversations will play out in class with your students, as well as, you know, in your other discussions with, with people online. I know you've been very active on social media. As always. Yeah, I think the thing for me is I'm teaching this class in civil military relations, so I can't help think about in that dimension of it. But just to, to address a couple of the points you raised, you know, the one thing I find least surprising about the events last Wednesday, now that we know more about them, is the lack of arrests at the end of the day. Because the more we look at the videotapes, the more we hear the stories of the Capitol Police, it was clear that they were so underprepared for this. And then they were so traumatized by it that you actually have reports of new, uh, several police officers who are there now contemplating or actually engaging in suicide. So there's gonna be a lot of PTSD to be had by these those folks. So I'm not that surprised that in reaction to the events that they didn't arrest people towards the end of the day. I do think that that one officer who, you know, when you first see the video, you think, what is he doing? He's just leading these guys through the building, but he was actually leading them away from the wide open door to the Senate. So I think the more we learn about it, the, the more we'll have a varied picture of it, of those who were complicit and those who, who exerted poor leadership and who underestimated what was going on. There's a lot of finger pointing to be had by everybody, but there's also the folks who, who really stood up and did, did what was right. I think it raises larger questions about command and control of who's, who's in charge of things and what happens when you have a president being the one to incite violence. I've had a running argument the past week with people about whether this is a coup or not a coup. I'm firmly on the, the camp of not a coup because I don't think it was an effort by actors within the government to overthrow the existing government uh, using elements of the military security forces to do so. But having the military and the National Guard, the various police forces unprepared to handle it, whereas they were overprepared to handle it last summer, is suggestive that, yes, we have a racism problem, a systemic racism problem in the United States, uh, infiltration of the various security branches, whether that's the Capitol Police, the National Guard, or the U.S. military of white supremacists. And that gets to the security problem that is not just a, an American thing, but a Canadian thing, because we also have had white supremacists and conspiracy theorists in our armed forces. And in fact, there might be some Canadians who showed up at the Capitol last week for some reason. So we have we have this problem too, that, that the border does not stop this. The Proud Boys founder is Canadian, that Canada has a white supremacy problem. And these folks do try to join the military to learn skills. And we haven't rooted all these people out of the military. It's been something that has been a news story in Canada for the past year. It's been a priority of John Vance. They put out a statement on hateful conduct last summer. But as John Vance has learned with sexual harassment, he has probably also learned with this stuff, which is it's one thing to put out policies. It's another thing to change an organization's culture. And it's another thing to change the people within the organization. None of the responses are, are quick and easy. They're all hard and it's going to take time. And I'm uncertain about how much progress we make in the medium term on this stuff. I think this past week's events were as disturbing as can be. Uh, I do think that, you know, Joe Biden will be president on the 20th, that his his government will function, but he's got a lot of cleanup to do. And he's got to look back at his own Secret Service because there's a Secret Service person who's putting stuff on Facebook. He's got to look at the military. He's got to look at 
the Capitol Police, and he's got to look at his Congress. I think the question of the day is how many of those Congress people should be allowed to serve anymore, given that they participated in an insurrection, whether that's Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, or whether it's the Congresswoman who is actually reporting on social media Nancy Pelosi's whereabouts during the event itself, basically giving the insurrectionists intelligence that they could weaponize. And they indeed tried to use weapons against the second, third, and fourth people in the line of succession in the United States, which should be as disturbing as can be. So I'm pretty disturbed and frustrated and angry, which is really a good uh, way to start the semester, I suppose. And international reactions were also interesting to monitor as uh, events unfolded. Some world leaders were trying to be cute on Twitter, but many MFAs expressed concern and condemned the attack, as well as Trump's role in inciting the violence. So at the end of the day, I just really wonder what it must be like living in D.C. right now. It's a city I know and love. I lived there right after graduation in 2010 and 11. And what will it look like when 15,000 National Guard troops are in the streets on Inauguration Day? I just don't know what the next couple of weeks have in store for us. Yeah, I've, I've got plenty of friends and family in D.C. I, I usually spend Christmas in D.C. because my mother-in-law lives nearby, near in the uh, suburbs. And we usually, my daughter and I usually make a pilgrimage to the mall every year to go to one of the Smithsonian museums. And actually, multiple Smithsonian museums. We usually take a picture in front of the Capitol. We often walk by the White House. I can't imagine what that place looks like right now. But I've got friends of mine who are, you know, directly in harm's way. They, you know, I see them confer with each other about who should go to where, whose house and should they leave their, their current place to try to get to someplace a little bit more distant. And whether that's a safer move or more dangerous move, it's incredibly disturbing to see these people have to think about these things in the national capital. What is Canada to do about this besides just sit there and watch the, this with great dismay? I think there's something that Canada can do. I think Canada has a role to deal with in fighting its own white supremacy problem. It needs to show the government and the parties need to show that they have no tolerance for this kind of stuff. And I'll be interested to see how the rebel and other far-right outlets handle this new reality where they are now seen not just as a joke, but as being a force for instability and violence that the violence that will occur in the United States over the next couple of weeks may sweep across this country as well. Uh, so that we need to be paying attention to that. This is this is about as serious as it gets. Yeah, I think we have to be really vigilant. And you brought a DND report to my attention last week about how a prolonged pandemic could further fuel extremism in Canada. We've talked a lot about right-wing extremism when discussing U.S. politics, but it's really a global phenomenon and the pandemic can exacerbate these trends. How governments and international organizations respond to the pandemic does impact the level of trust people have in institutions. And there is a lot of frustration, not only because cases are surging, but the vaccine rollouts are too slow and the financial toll associated with the pandemic just gets heavier. So it's quite predictable to see the feelings of frustration getting more pronounced. And, and certainly, I don't know if, if you saw this, Steve, but I took a look at a, an Angus Reid study that was conducted recently that does show that Canadians are feeling and acting more concerned about the pandemic. Half of Canadians are frustrated and fewer people are trusting that others are following the, the rules. 80% of Canadians believe things are getting worse. So those are the types of 
feelings and frustrations that can be uh, exploited. Exploiting that frustration is something that extremist groups can do right at home. Uh, and of course, countries like China and Russia are at the top of the list when it comes to external actors who are primed and ready to also exploit those frustrations. So I do think we need to be uh, vigilant uh, about the rise of, of extremism and how the pandemic can contribute to those movements. Yeah, I, I, th I think you're right on target there. I, I think that we are all very frustrated with how the government has handled the pandemic. And we've seen over the pattern of the past 20 or 30 years, less trust in government and more alienation. And this is fodder for the, the far right, for these white supremacist groups to recruit that, you know, we may be, the economic consequences of the pandemic have been severe, though that we may not be feeling them as much as we think because there has has been some government policies to provide a bit of a, of a safety net. But it's been a very traumatic year and people are going to blame folks. And that often leads to, to amplifying racism. I mean, Trump himself was, of course, referring to the Wuhan virus, and there can, there has been a uptick in anti-Asian hate crimes in in North America because we're blaming the Chinese when really the fault for the way the pandemic has played out has been our own behavior and the behavior of our politicians, not not any foreigners. But in situations like this, the foreigners always get blamed. It's easier to do it that way than to be, be more responsible ourselves. So I think it was interesting that the, that the military had this report done. I think it was interesting that the report was, was either leaked or published, I forget which. Uh, so it's clear that this is a high priority. One of the networks that the the DB funded last year for three years is on hateful conduct. So this mm -hmm. is, is being taken quite seriously, but it, it, it's going to be with us for a while because it's, it's it, it does have international actors that are feeding the flames, particularly the Russians, but others folks as well. And it's not going to go away anytime too soon, but we need to do a better job of of seeing what's in front of us and taking it very seriously. One of the problems with last week is that it was mostly a bunch of amateur morons who were just, you know, incited as a mob. If they had been just a little cleverer, if they had just been a, bit, a little luckier, the damage would have been higher. But we tend to underestimate these people, as the DC cops did, because they look foolish and they believe these foolish conspiracy theories. But their beliefs may be dumb but and ill-conceived, but their capacity to do harm is significant. We need to take that very seriously. We had that QAnon reader who showed up in Rideau Hall looking for the prime minister to protest stuff. That was, that was not that long ago, mm. and he's not alone in terms of this in Canada. So there needs to be some serious vigilance, but it needs to be done in ways that doesn't that don't impinge on our liberties. So that's always the trade-off of how do you make things more secure without giving away the freedom that, that you're trying to protect. So this will be something we're gonna be following. And it's, uh, you know, we, I mentioned John Vance, but John Vance is gonna be leaving us as CDS in the next week or so. We finally have the name of a new chief of defense staff, Art McDonald, uh, an admiral. So this means that I win the bet that I have with Stephanie. She, <laughs> bet, she bet for Air Force, I bet Navy. And so she owes me a beer at some point in time where we actually beer again together. So what are your thoughts on the new CDS and what, what he's taking on at this yeah. moment in time? It's a good way to lighten the mood from our previous conversation. <laughs> I think we were waiting on the announcement for so long. I'm glad that this announcement came out. Vice Admiral Art McDonald is the commander of the Navy and has considerable operational experience. He's led the maritime component of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Domestically, he has experience in the Arctic and led the uh, Operation Lentis response in British Columbia, dealing with mm -hmm. fires and floods when he was commanding Joint Task Force Pacific. He certainly has the skills, but he's not as 
well known of a name compared to some of the other candidates who were considered likely to get the job. So it's it's an interesting choice. It's a it's a safe choice, I think. And it's also unlikely that he will hold the CDS position for as long as Vance did. <laughs> <laughs> Almost six years, which might very well be a record. So um I'm looking forward to just tracking what his first few days in the role will look mm-hmm. like. Uh, the current CDS, uh, his legacy was very much around eradicating sexual misconduct, promoting women's leadership within the Canadian Armed Forces. Those are military personnel issues that were really high on the agenda. So Vice Admiral McDonald's first days in the role will really signal whether he intends on having similar military personnel policies mm-hmm. or whether he will emphasize different priorities. But in terms of his experience and, and skill set, I think he's he's well equipped, uh, especially with that strong uh, domestic operations focused mm. uh, to take on some of the challenges that that we can expect in, two, in 2021 and beyond. Yeah, I'm really curious. I don't, uh, you know, as you said, he's, he's not as well known in town. One thing Vance was, was very well known in town. Vance did a lot of outreach. Uh, you not only showed up at big conferences, but uh, he was also willing to talk to people at the smaller conferences. He was very willing to pull people aside. As much as I gave him troubling question, troublesome questions at, at various conferences, he, he made time to talk to me about stuff. Uh, and I knew him from his prior experience in Afghanistan and the interview that I did for my book before he became CDS, whereas I don't really know McDonald at all. And it'll be interesting to see what his communication strategy is like, because Vance was very much out, out in front. He wasn't Rick Hillier in saying things that that really bothered the government. I think that obviously the government was very, very comfortable with him since they kept him around for so long. Mm-hmm. But he was somebody who, you know, was very visible. And so, you know, the question is whether McDonald would be more like Lawson, Vance's predecessor, uh, where Lawson wasn't really all that forthcoming uh, when he was the chief of defense staff. So it would definitely be a different style, but I have no idea what the style is going to be. So we'll be watching that with bated breath and see how things play out both while the pandemic's going on and afterwards, because then hmm. maybe there'll be more opportunity to interact. But he's got a he's got a lot of challenges ahead of him because this is he's inheriting a very tough situation given the pandemic is still ongoing, that the forces have been given the job of helping to manage the rollout of the vaccines, which is not going that great. Although I don't think hmm. that's on the Canadian forces. You know, we've got lots of missions out there in the world. Uh, you and I are writing an article for an edited volume about how the pandemic has affected the operations. And I, th- I do think one thing that McDonald can take credit for is we really haven't had many bad Navy stories about the pandemic. You know, one of the early stories was the American aircraft carrier, the Theodore Roosevelt, that, you know, got laid up in Guam because its crew was faced an infection. And then he, that captain had problems with his chain of command, which ultimately led to the firing of the secretary of the Navy, if I'm, I'm, I'm remembering correctly. We had none of that. So that, that you know, that, that, that may have changed operations a little bit, but the Navy has basically sailed on despite the pandemic, not having its operations uh, disturbed too much. So I think, I think he, hand, he led the Navy through that tough time pretty well. So we'll see if, how he handles the entire force. And as we wind down the the episode, did you want to answer that question that was posed to us on Twitter? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Claire Wallen, who's a a friend of of the CDSN, asked what to make of of Secretary of State Pompeo's various decisions the past week or two. Usually, uh, administrations in this lame duck period between the election and the inauguration lay low. They tend not to to develop new initiatives, but the Trump administration has been trying to do as many things as possible to tie Biden's hands, including declaring Cuba to be a supporter of terrorism, including trying to declare, uh, you know, change relations with Taiwan and a variety of other things. The idea is to make it very difficult politically for Biden to roll, the, roll these things back. 
I've been advocating for the Biden administration to basically announce that any decision made by the, tri the Trump administration between the election and inauguration is going to be put on hold and they'll all be evaluated and the, that the ones that are, that are meritorious will go forward, the ones that aren't won't. And then, and then just don't do the things that Trump has promised to do or, or, and, and just roll back those decisions that, that are problematic. But this is almost unheard of that even when George Herbert Walker Bush, George Bush Sr. sent troops to Somalia in 1992. That was that was seen as exceptional. And I think he consulted with the Clinton administration coming in about it, but it was something that he was wary about doing. It wasn't he wasn't trying to tie Clinton's hands. He was trying to respond to an emergency. And that's clearly not what's going on here. It's not great, but then this administration has broken every norm and they're shameless about it. And they're not going gently into the night. They are resisting mightily as they go out, causing tremendous amounts of damage, both domestically and internationally. Apparently, um, Mike Pence was on the phone trying to call American allies saying, it's okay, we're not out of control, everything's fine here. <laughs> Which some people use the image from Star Wars where Han Solo is trying to tell the people in the Death Star when they're trying to break into the prison, don't worry about it, everything's fine here. How are you doing? Which uh, might be the best analogy. I, I, I think this, uh, this government needs to get out of the way as fast as possible and they're resisting mightily. That's, that, that's a real problem. Well, thank you, Claire, for that question and for your continued support of Battle Rhythm. Up next, Steve, we have your interview with Maggie Feldman-Pilch from NatSec Girl Squad. Yes, Maggie is is quite the personality. She's well known in Twitter circles. Uh, she built that Set Girl Squad, which is a group that aims to support uh, women in, in the national security sphere. And they run a whole lot of org uh, events. I can't believe how many events they organize to help train people to to be more competitive and competent in in that sphere. So we talk about that. We talk a little bit about. Her, the other stuff she's she's doing, and yes, yeah, Stephanie, I failed to get her to sing. She is she is an <laughs> opera singer of some note, and I did not get her to sing. But you know, I'm not a perfect interviewer. No, uh, you can I, go ahead and sing now if you want, Steve. To no make one up wants that. that. No one wants to hear me sing. I said she's a singer. She she is a, a trained uh, uh, singer. Of uh, uh, I have the opposite skills. I think I might be a super villain when it comes to using my voice to to uh, convey things. Anyway, it was great to talk to you, Stephanie. I, I missed you while, while we were on break. Glad to have you back. Good luck in managing all the initiatives and teaching that you're doing while your boys are at home. I know it's not easy, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us every two weeks. It's good to be back on the air with you, Steve, and great start to the new term. Stay safe, and we'll talk soon. I'd like to welcome Maggie Feldman-Pilch of the Nat Girls Squad uh, to Battle Rhythm. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's really exciting to get to talk to Canada. This is <laughs> one of my favorite activities. <laughs> Do you talk to Canada often? I mean, mostly over Twitter. I've got to say like that the, the Canadian forces in, uh, in the U.S., right, that, that Twitter account, um, and I know that like he's out now, but um, yeah. I guess I suppose we will respect his semi-anonymity. Um, really impressive and just really reminds me how much I love Canada. Well, our audience is probably not as familiar with Nat Girl Squad as folks sure. who dwell on Twitter. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is and, and why you helped create it? And congratulations to everyone that is not dwelling on Twitter because uh, it's actually not real life. So good job. So NASA Girl Squad is a community that I sort of built by accident, started, geez, 
almost six years ago now um, as a Google group listserv, a really, that still exists now actually. And the Google group listserv started really just as a mechanism to communicate with one another, <laughs> which is in fact what listservs do. You know, job openings, hey, I'm going to this event, I have nobody to sit with, that kind of thing. But what Netflix Girl Squad is focused on and is this idea of building competent diversity in national security and defense. So what that means to us is, you know, that, that people who, what we call are non-PMS, non-pale, male, and stale, right? Recognizing that you have no control over how you're born, but you can in fact control your personality and who you are and how you engage in the world, i.e. whether or not you're stale. There needs to be more of us that are not PMS in this space. And just kind of showing up isn't enough, right? We need more support. We need each other. We need to be able to know our stuff, to trust ourselves that we know our stuff, to have other people trust that we know ourselves and, our, and know our stuff and actually be heard. So really broadly, that's what uh, we do. And, you know, as much as I hate to say this and it feels kind of cliche now, I sort of think about Not That Girl Squad in, in two ways, right? The before times, the before COVID times and the current times, right? There is no after yet. So in the before times, Not That Girl Squad had anywhere from, I don't know, maybe like three to seven events each month. And those events would really run the gamut of, you know, yoga classes. We would do like really early morning hot yoga together, which was great and also excruciating, as well as classes on how to brief and not just how to brief broadly, but how do you brief for specific agencies? A lot of uh, language classes and learning about different federal agencies and, and what it's like to work there and things like that. Um, and we would have an annual meeting every year. Um, called NSGS Con, right? Now it's like Girl Squad Con. And it was literally, well, it was and is, where hundreds of us would get together for multi-day kind of symposium that does, again, a little bit of everything. And then COVID happened. And, you know, kind of the day that will live in infamy, if I, I can say that, was, you know, March 13th, Friday, March 13th. Uh, and I, I don't remember it so much because it was Friday the 13th, but mostly because, you know, everything started to feel a little bit funny by then. And I was having lunch with a, a mentor of mine and we were trying to figure out like, okay, what is what does this mean? And he is a retired three-star admiral in the U.S. Navy and a really smart guy. And he said to me, you know, trust your gut, right? And so in that moment, we decided on Knapsack Girl Squad goes antiviral. And to date, so it is, you know, the end of November, as we're having this conversation, um, we've had over 980 events, training sessions, all virtual. So like I said, we used to do maybe three to seven a month. We now do that many a day. And there were some other things we were working on kind of prior to COVID. We were building a, a platform and an app that would enable the Knapsack Girl Squad community members to communicate with one another virtually. Something we've been working on for about two and a half years now and taking into consideration all of the different capabilities we would need, the fact that I'm not a tech or cyber person and the special considerations given our community and also wanting to protect people, et cetera, et cetera. Because the internet is a hard place when you work in national security and defense because of COVID, that process really got set up. So the platform, which is called Herd Mentality, is now launched. It exists. We will hold this year's annual conference there uh, for four days. And I've been told I have no way to, you know, there's no way to really know this, but apparently 
this year's annual conference is now the largest national security and defense symposium in the world. I don't know if that's wow. true, but I think it's at least the longest and has the most sessions and speakers. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes me, you know, a little bit loony kids or if that just makes our team really brave. Totally mm-hmm. up to you and your listeners. And so for that event, is it more about the stuff or, you know, the stuff of national security, or is it more about the community of how did it become a diversified community, yeah. how, to, how to train people to be competitive in that marketplace? It's all of the above, right? So we really balance the sessions. And it's a great question. And it's essentially how do we build the agenda, right? Mm-hmm. And one of our rules is that we will never have a session, whether it's at the, the annual conference or you know any of our other events, will never be, what is it like to be a woman in national security? Like that's not a conversation we have, right? Because we all know what it's like. <laughs> and there are other people that can have that conversation. We also don't do diversity, equity, and inclusion training. We don't do unconscious bias training. That's not what we do. We really see our job as training, supporting our community. So the way that we build the agenda is split pretty 50-50 between what we consider crucial national security issues and the training piece. And I would say that we consider the training to be the most crucial national or international security and defense issue, because ultimately all of these challenges are are people problems, right? Mm -hmm. None of us can know everything. I have tried. I really have. (laughs) It can't be done. So what helps me sleep at night is knowing that there's, you know, the right people in the room and that their voices are are well-informed and heard. And so, again, the way we we build the agenda is split pretty 50-50. It's also split pretty 50-50 between really well-known voices and brand newbies, right? So Mm -hmm. Dr. Corey Shockey and Dr. Emma Ashford will be on a panel with two young women, one who is still an undergrad. Right. Wow. And they're and the young people are not the moderators, they're panelists. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, at the same time that we're gonna have a conversation with the spokespeople for each of the military services as well as um, the office of the director of national intelligence, we're also having a training on how to write a memo because mm. both of these things are equally mm-hmm. important to us. And I guess one complication that is an interesting one. When is your event? So the the conference is December first to the fourth platform that we built will be kind of like the new virtual hangout spot for all of our members. Well, the reason why I ask is because some of the people that you might have invited might suddenly have a, a new job starting in January. Yeah. And yeah. so have you, have you faced a, a nutrition problem or is it suddenly, wow, you're going to have people that you thought were pretty high profile, but now are super high profile? Um, it's a little bit of both, right? And I think we were quite aware, you know, One of the things about uh, the U.S. system of government is that we know when our elections are going to be, right? Mm -hmm. Chaos and turmoil be damned. We know when they are. We don't always know when they'll end, but we know when they are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so we always, I can say that now because this is the third time we've done this event, do our our conference end of November, beginning of December. Mm -hmm. And we knew that you know there was an election this year. There's going to be a transition. So we tried to start planning a little bit earlier than we have in the past. And I think my team was really grateful that I managed to buckle myself down (laughs) and work through some of those things earlier. And then they were also like, just because it's earlier doesn't mean it should be more days. And I was like, that's what you think. But we knew, right? We knew that there was going to be a transition. Well, we knew that there was going to be an election. We didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And we are completely apolitical organization, right? So I'm not saying nonpartisan. I mean, we don't touch politics. We can't. 
the vast majority of our members are civil servants, members of the military, people in the IC, Hatchock restricted government employees, et cetera. People who, you know, they're certainly not on Twitter. <laughs> and talking politics is not a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. We were aware that there was an election. We were aware that some significant members of our community who have been speakers and teachers in the past may be otherwise engaged, you know, on transition teams, et cetera. And that, of course, certainly happened. But I think. You know, we've worked hard over the last six years to build the community that we've built, right? We, we work with over 40,000 people every month. And, you know, I think I, ha I don't have my tally yet for this year, but last year I met one-on-one -on -one or in groups of three and smaller with over 1,900 people. It will be more this year. We've worked really, really, really hard to build this network and I and prioritize the members because it's the right thing to do. And I think those that are involved in the community who may be otherwise engaged, and let's face it, it's a pandemic. And because we're a majority uh, women group, pandemic hits different when you're a girl, let's put it that way. So everybody's being pulled in a million different directions. And we are immensely grateful for those that have somehow managed to balance regular pandemic life with transition life and still be so giving of their time and, and everything else. And we completely understand those that, you know, are like building a whole other government right now. So it'll certainly be interesting to see how things shake out in January. Given the pattern of Biden's appointments thus far, how are you feeling about the increased diversity of the new incoming administration? I know your organization is not political, but mm -hmm. there does seem to be night and day between the role of women in, in powerful positions who are unrelated to the president uh, under the new administration as compared to the previous one. Yeah. So you're right that NATSEC Girl Squad does not touch politics. One of the joys of being a complete and total human being is that on occasion, I'm known to do some things that are, you know, not inherently NASDAQ Girl Squad. So I have the incredible honor of being on the advisory committee and pledge implementation committee for an organization called LC WINS. So it's the mm -hmm. Leadership Council for Women in National Security. I am without a doubt the low person on that totem pole and I am damn happy to be there. It's <laughs> basically like if we had, right, like for national security nerds, if we had like a hall of fame, this would be it. And so I love going to these meetings, especially, I mean, it's thanks doing it in, in COVID times, but particularly in Zoom, if you've never seen like 96 incredible women in national security and defense all populate into a Zoom room at once, it is mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. But I bring this up in relation to your question because LC Wins, which is founded by a group of incredible, like true powerful women, including Dr. Tamara Wittes and Julie Smith, and Nina, really like a, a fabulous, fabulous group, had this brilliant idea at the time for a pledge called the 50-50 in 2020 pledge. And so they approached every single uh, candidate for the office of the president at the time, and this was a long time ago now, and said, we want you to commit to a minimum of gender parity in senior Senate confirmable national security positions. Will you do it? Every single candidate except one said yes. And so we have spent the last year or so under the, the guidance of our badass executive director, Lindsay Rodman, working to implement that pledge and, and supporting the implementation of it. So sourcing a, a database of over 800 women who are qualified to fill this role, these roles, right? Because again, this is senior civilian Senate confirmable. I should, I should make sure to make clear, right? Because in the United States, you don't become... <laughs> 
general or an admiral by presidential decree, really, right? So recognizing that there's no that there are Senate confirmable um, military positions that are outside of the scope of this pledge. Mm. You know, as you're asking me, what it, what do I think about how things are shaping up right now? I think lots of happy thoughts about it. Something that that's been asked of me quite a bit lately is, well, how do you know that they're going to really stick to the pledge? Right. This was early before any cabinet positions had been named. And I was like, well, so far, so good. And people looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, you realize half the t- like they've they've stuck to it with the tickets. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a fan of believing that if somebody tells you tells you they're going to do something and demonstrates meaningful, intentional effort, you should believe them and support them, right? Trust, but verify, one might say. So I'm feeling pretty good. You know, there's certainly the part of my brain that says, this is a great starting point, because it is, but this isn't the whole ball game, right? I would love to see, you know, something I've also said publicly, and maybe to a fault at this point, is that I'm not always interested in who's first, I'm interested in who's 10th, right? Mm -hmm. Because we need this to be lasting, repeatable institutional change. Um, we're not looking for number one. We're looking for number 10, but you got to start at number one. Yeah, well, I was really struck by the transition teams that they announced, uh, it, what they call the agency mm-hmm. teams, that the DOD team yeah. was like 13 women out Majority of 23. Women. And <laughs> yeah. a couple of the speakers that we've had in Canada for our event last year, the year head event, uh, Bonnie Jenkins and Sean Skelly were on mm-hmm. uh, the state and DOD teams. So the idea yeah. that we organize, organizers of groups that are aiming to foster better inclusion and diversity in the mil, in the national security space being actually put into these transition teams that are given the job of identifying the folks who get these jobs. Yeah, I thought that was most promising. And uh, we're talking the week where Biden rolled out his first six people and his first six yeah. people were included putting women into important positions, uh, putting a, a black woman at the UN. So we're seeing the promise that they may be rolled out. And we'll see yeah. if between the time we record this and the time that we actually broadcast it or drop the episode, whether the promises keep on being kept. But I do think that- All roads point to, to North. Yeah. yeah, it's looking pretty good. <laughs> So, I would also say there, there's one other thing I want to point out about this, right? Because this is a question I get a lot, right? Diversity is more than just gender. And I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't also point out that in the six names that uh, President-elect Biden, I have to get over not calling him Vice President Biden, right? <laughs> <laughs> has named so far at the point that we're having this conversation. It includes two Jews, one uh, who is a refugee from Cuba, and one who is the, the child of refugees. And what and it, that's, that's not a small statement, right? And I think representation and intersectionality matters. So you have this organization. It seems like you are so incredibly busy running this one organization. Is, is this your day job and your night job or is there other stuff that you do? Yeah, so it is my day job and my night job. I have a second night job and that's probably the thing that keeps me sane, right? Well, it used to. Now it's a little bit harder because as a friend of mine says, we're in the middle of a panty, right? The, the nickname for a pandemic now, I guess, is panty if you're a Gen Zer. So fascinating. Okay, that's um, a Gen Z yeah, thing. So it's ahead. really not a Gen X yeah. thing. 
no, it's definitely, I mean, I'm a millennial and my friend is about 10 years younger than me. So it's her job to tell me what I'm missing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So she calls it a panty and I'm just going to borrow it. So it used to be the thing that kept me sane. Now it's a little bit more complicated, but I do have a, a night job is what I call it as an opera singer. And you sort of alluded to this when we were talking about our, our much beloved undergraduate educations. Um, so, so being an opera singer in a pandemic is not easy. I don't suggest it. But, you know, like it's singing over Zoom, if, if you think doing a podcast over Zoom is wild, just wait till you try to sing an aria because man, oh man, is that sound not the same. Nobody wants to hear me sing. Trust me. <laughs> well, you know... Listen, we're all sounding the same over Zoom. You know, as somebody who who has a fairly elaborate uh, audio setup, right? We've got the filters, we've got the mics, we've got all the things, the original sound, the not original sound. I am a very high lyric coloratura soprano, and some things just don't transfer on a computer. And singing is not a solitary, well, for me, in some ways, it's a bit solitary because I like to say that my day job is about the least amount of drama possible and avoiding death, right? Whereas my night job, my idea of a good time is, can I die dramatically alone on stage? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right, like they're very different. And so in that way it's solitary, but it's a performance, right? And performing over Zoom is not the same as performing Mm -hmm. in person. And it's very difficult, whether you're talking about you know, singing with other people, whether you're talking about singing with um, accompaniment, all of these things, there's not a single part of it that's easy. And it's a, it's a really different physical, mental, emotional experience than what I'm used to, but we do the best we can, <laughs> right? One other last thing before we get going, I was looking around for your bio. I, I found that you do, you have expertise in civil mill relations. Um, so I'm curious as to where you operate in that space. What do you do on civil mill relations? How'd you get, how'd you get into it? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I moved to Washington, D.C., where I now live, you know, how I got here was a, that's a whole other story. But I showed up with not a single undergraduate government or a political science class in the traditional sense, but have, in fact, having seen the entirety of the West Wing. Um, <laughs> oh, no. like, yeah, right. You were like, this is, in fact, not real life. And I started out as an intern at a think tank that's called American Security Project. And as I just mentioned, no previous relevant academic experience, right? I I studied vocal performance and theoretical economics, theoretical ethical economics, in fact, at Wesleyan. So not like really well prepared for writing blogs and the other things that you do as an intern in D.C., um, and there were many other interns at the time, and they were all excellent at the blog writing. Um, and in fact, my first day, I sat next to a guy who had both an undergraduate and graduate degree in water security. And I was like, okay, I have really royally messed this up. And so I ended up mostly by force as um, the intern and then the assistant and then all the other things that come after that to the CEO of the organization, whose name is Stephen Cheney. He's a retired Marine Corps general. And American Security Project was set up years ago by then Senators John Kerry and Chuck Hagel. And they envisioned what they would call a do tank rather than a think tank that was truly nonpartisan and selected two senior, so retired three or four stars from each of the military services minus the Coast Guard to make up the board. 
and then built something called the Consensus for American Security, which was many, many more generals and admirals and then former secretaries of state and defense, et cetera, et cetera. And I became the person that worked with all of them and found that I was strangely predisposed to it. There was something about the translation of communicating how they saw the world and communicated with each other into the civilian world and back and forth, right? Because as a CISML expert yourself, you know that these are two, uh, the Venn diagram exists, but the overlap is not very large. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was something about the translation and the understanding of the, the cultural realities of the institutions that these people came from that just clicked for me. And when I started graduate school, I read a book called, uh, well, it's a Rand report turned into a book called Masks of War. And I will never forget reading it for the first time. And I still have my original copy and many copies since. And it's like every single page is covered in highlighting, which is bad highlighting, and many, many post-it flags. And I remember reading it and just being like, oh, I'm a hundred thousand percent in the right line of work because everything about this is fascinating. And I have a million questions and I agree with this sentence, but I disagree with this one. And, and I became fascinated specifically in how the origin stories of the different U.S. military services impacted policymaking and how they appro- approach the budgeting process. Mm. And so that was and still is in many ways the thing that I, I focus on <laughs> when uh, when I'm not NatSec girl squatting or operating. I've got this other thing that goes on in my brain all the time. When I was in graduate school, that that is what I focused on um, and wrote several very long papers on each of the services and their origin story and the budgeting process and really specifically looking at the difference between the Army and the Marine Corps in so many ways. (laughs) They are so different and so similar and so extra, let's put it that way. So if, are you on Team Marines or Team Army? It's hard. It's it's, it's, it's it's really, really, really hard. Really (laughs) hard, right? My my baby brother, I refer to on the internet as Lieutenant Baby Brother, um, is actually uh, literally en route to Japan right now. He's a little baby Marine on his first big deployment. And I'm fascinated by the Marine Corps and feel quite at home with them in many ways, I would say largely because there's a lot of pomp and circumstance, but there's also none at all. And one of the things that is hardest for me, frankly, you know, for being really honest about my day job is that I'm constantly looked at like an alien, right? And it's not just because of the purple hair. The Marines are not distracted by the glitter and the confetti, right? Like mm. they'll just sit and have a real conversation with me and, and they're not, they, they have seen some real shit as they would say um, and are not, uh, and not scared off by all the chaos. And I really appreciate it like that. At the same time, the army's kind of nice because they're just like, we're just here to do things. And that's soothing too. Well, that's nice to end on the soothing note. I really appreciate you, uh, chatting with us today. You are one of the busiest people in show business. Uh, the the, the NatSec Girl Squad uh, website and email address and Twitter accounts are all chock full of lots and lots of activities. Uh, I don't know how you keep up your pace of operations or your op tempo, as, as the military folks would say. Well, uh, a lot of chaos. You know, I, as people have asked, I say we're fueled entirely by spit and duct tape. So <laughs> that's my answer. Sounds like uh, an interesting way to, to go through through the, the yeah, pandemic and, and eventually post-pandemic. Uh, It'll be just fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, Maggie, thanks for spending some time with Battle Rhythm. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I'll look forward to seeing whether you decide to have some uh, Canadian franchise uh, to develop. Thank you so much for having me.
And I'm always happy to come to Canada if, or talk to anybody in Canada. Because like I said, I really love Canada. Well, we'll bring you out once the border becomes porous again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when the panty has died down, right? Yeah, yeah. I, this whole panty thing. I'm not sure if I'll be able to adopt that. Let me know. <laughs> For this week's rest and relaxation, which we all could use, I've got three suggestions. First is Palm Springs, a movie on Amazon. It stars Andy Samberg and Krista Milotti. And it's about this couple dealing with, well, I don't want to say too much about it because the joy of it is discovering it. But a guy goes to a wedding and finds it hard to leave it. Uh, and uh, it, lots of hilarity ensues. It's really a terrific movie, a nice distraction. The second is We Can Be Heroes, which is a Netflix movie made by Robert Rodriguez. And it's very much a descendant of Spy Kids and the Spy Kids sequels. And it's about these kids who have to save the earth because all their superhero parents uh, have been captured by aliens. And so it's on them to try to save their parents and save the planet. And so it's delightful, it's a nice distraction. The third one, I haven't seen it yet, but I have full faith that it's gonna be glorious, which is WandaVision, the new Disney Plus, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, TV show starts on Friday, and I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, the production values look great, and it'll be interesting to see what the story is because, well, I'm not going to give any spoilers about how the the movies went, but I'm not exactly sure what time frame this thing's happening in. But it'll be interesting to see WandaVision, and I'm sure I'll be talking about that on the internets in the weeks to come. Be well, stay away from everybody else, wear your masks. And good luck in the days ahead. We'll get through this sooner or later. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.